This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an update on a bill that would place limits on when paramedics can sedate people with ketamine. Plus, we talk about an incentive program to get unemployed Coloradans back to the workforce. There's a whole host of reasons why people aren't necessarily jumping back into the workforce. And they're perfectly rational reasons. And we learn why another incentive to vaccinate Colorado's correctional officers isn't working. Those stories just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. One of the bills coming out of this year's legislative session places limits on when paramedics can sedate people with ketamine. A series of stories by KUNC showed that hundreds of Coloradans were sedated, in some cases while already in handcuffs, prompting many questions about the practice, including what happened to Elijah McLean. Here with more on how we got to this point is KUNC investigative reporter Michael DeYuana. Hi, Henry. Tell us more specifically what the bill does. At its core, the bill would limit the use of ketamine to sedate people to, quote, justifiable medical emergencies. If a paramedic uses it in a situation where police are seeking to subdue, sedate, or chemically incapacitate someone, then that would now be considered misconduct. It also bars police officers from unduly influencing paramedics to sedate a person. Well, that is a lot for a practice that admittedly most people don't know much about. And it's also one that hasn't had much, if anything, in terms of disciplinary oversight from state officials. Basically, this push for reform started with the death of Elijah McLean. Yeah, and it was his death that led me and my colleague Ray Solomon to investigate last summer. It began with police body camera footage and a warning that the next minute or so might be hard for some listeners to hear. Favorite stop right there. That's an Aurora police officer stopping 23-year-old Elijah McLean. It's 10.30, the night of August 24th, 2019. Stop. I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. The officer is responding to a 911 call about someone wearing a ski mask who looks sketchy. Stop. Stop tensing up, dude. Stop tensing up. McLean was wearing headphones. He was waving his arms. As the police approach, he says he's just going home. He tries to keep walking, but an officer grabs his arm. Relax or I'm going to have to change this situation. Stop. Leave me alone. You can hear as a struggle begins. And it escalates really fast. Give us more. Give us some more units. We're fighting them. And in a few moments, McLean is on the ground and he's wearing handcuffs and pleading with officers. My name's Elijah McLean. Then a medic with Aurora Fire Rescue arrives, and the officers tell them that McLean was resisting. He has incredible strength. Exceptional strength. That's one of the signs of an extremely agitated state called excited delirium. And in many jurisdictions around the state, paramedics are able to use ketamine, a powerful anesthetic, to sedate people with it. And paramedics did that to McLean. Let's remind people what exactly excited delirium is. We've spoken to experts about it, including emergency doctor Kevin McVaney. He's with Denver Health. He oversees medics in Denver who use ketamine in this way. Excited delirium or agitated delirium is a condition where due to a mental health problem, drug ingestion, some other physiologic and metabolic things uh, can make you just sort of lose control and you're resisting uh, and you don't follow the normal stimulus that would make you stop resisting. 
To be clear, he's not involved in the Elijah McClain case. Denver Health is among the groups opposing the bill, and McVaney has testified that ketamine sedations in the field save people's lives by calming them quickly and getting them to the emergency room. And so why ketamine? There are other drugs that can be used to sedate people, but in his testimony at the Capitol, McVaney said there's no other drug that is as fast-acting, and that's consistent with what other emergency doctors told us. What do psychiatrists say about its use and also about excited delirium? While excited delirium is discussed in a 2009 white paper by the American College of Emergency Physicians, It's not found in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual of Disorders. In uh, December, the APA's Board of Trustees wrote in a position statement that the criteria for excited delirium are unclear and also that, quote, the term excited delirium is disproportionately applied to black men in police custody. And as we all know, Elijah McClain was black. Michael, it seems that there's no agreement in the medical community about these sedations. Anesthesiologists also raise the concern that doctors are not present to monitor these sedations with a drug that's dangerous if misused. Did Elijah McClain have excited delirium? First, let's look at an independent report to the city of Aurora this year. It found that Aurora Fire Rescue Medics appeared to accept the officer's impressions that McLean had excited delirium without, quote, corroborating that impression through meaningful observation or diagnostic examination. Moreover, his family and supporters say he didn't appear to have it at all. And his family has filed a wrongful death lawsuit because of all these things, right? Right. And Elijah McClain's story, you know, might have been forgotten if it wasn't for Black Lives Matter demonstrators chanting his name last June. There had been news stories, but those protests inspired us to dig deeper. We wanted to know how often does this happen? So we pressed the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and we came away with a headline that got a lot of attention. In a two and a half year period, paramedics statewide sedated people 902 times for excited delirium or extreme agitation. How rare is excited delirium? Because that That 902 number seems like a lot. 902 cases seem like a lot to us, too. So we turned to an expert, Dr. Mark DeBard, a retired emergency physician from Ohio who helped define excited delirium and ways to treat it about a decade ago. He referenced a study on the frequency of excited delirium in communities and then did some math. I came up with the number 57 as the number of expected cases, statistically speaking, for Colorado in those two and a half years. In other words, Dr. DeBard said paramedics appeared to sedate people 15 times more often than he would expect. One of the things that stands out from watching the video of Elijah McClain being sedated is that he's already in handcuffs. Is that common in these situations? We don't know exactly, as there's no data for that. However, we found other cases where other people were restrained in handcuffs before they were sedated. And one of those cases is another Elijah, Elijah McKnight. I woke up in the ICU. And the other person is Jeremiah Axtell. I wake up in a chair, sitting up in a room that didn't have a bathroom. 
I think it was the morgue. Their run-ins with officers happened in Arapahoe County and Lakewood, respectively, but their stories have many similarities to McLean's. And of those 902 sedations we found, there were complications about 17% of the time. The most common was hypoxia, a potentially life-threatening lack of oxygen. Both of these men have also filed lawsuits alleging they were wrongfully sedated. And they both denied that they had excited delirium and video we and experts reviewed for stories appears to back up their assertions. I should add that officials in both jurisdictions have declined to be interviewed by KUNC about their cases, citing ongoing litigation. So all of this gets the attention of lawmakers. One in particular, Representative Leslie Herod, who told us late last year that she was going to work on a bill for the 2021 session. House Judiciary Committee will come to order on Wednesday, the 28th of April, Mr. Post. Herod told the committee that multiple videos show officers pushing to use ketamine on people they've restrained when paramedics are supposed to be assessing that on their own. Because we have seen time and time again that that direction is happening. And we have heard, I have heard privately from folks who practice in the field that they do not feel like they have the ability to tell a law enforcement officer no. Herod said ketamine is being used like handcuffs as a way of chemically restraining people. And she told lawmakers that the bill is an extension of an historic bipartisan police accountability bill signed by the governor last year amid massive George Floyd demonstrations. That was Senate Bill 217 and featured changes like new rules around police use of deadly force and body camera mandates for all officers in coming years and so forth. Exactly. And representatives for police testified against the current bill, including the Colorado Association for Chiefs of Police. Arapahoe County Sheriff Tyler Brown told me police paramedics and doctors have been training for years to identify severely agitated people and to sedate them quickly with ketamine to get them to care. He worries the bill will interfere with that training. You know, in my testimony to uh, the House committee uh, that was hearing the bill is that if we're not trained in it, we shouldn't be demanding that it be administered. But we need to be able to share the information with the professionals so that they can have all of that laid out in front of them to help in their determination. Now, to be clear, Sheriff Brown is saying that with or without a bill, officers should not be directing paramedics to use ketamine, but they have to be able to talk about what's going on with someone because they're often the first on the scene. Does the bill touch on that in any way? There's a line that says officers, quote, may provide critical medical information or any other pertinent information about the individual or the scene of the emergency that may assist EMS providers' assessment of the need to administer ketamine. Now, that was one of the amendments that came up, but the bill also requires EMS providers who feel they were influenced to use ketamine to report that to proper authorities. As for officers that witness influence, they are also required to intervene and stop it, regardless of their chain of command. And if they fail to do so, that could be considered a misdemeanor crime. So a takeaway that I'm hearing is, on one hand, you have supporters saying how it will limit ketamine sedations. But on the other hand, they're also outlining the conditions by which people can still be sedated. 
That's why uh, some people wanted an outright ban. Um, but there's an acknowledge here by Representative Herod that there are situations where it may be appropriate. But when in the presence of a law enforcement officer, it's a concern. In a call with me this week, she told me the bill will ultimately reduce ketamine sedations. We have put some safeguards in place, specifically around needing a call-in, um, ensuring that you immediately transport to the hospital, um, really making it more difficult to administer ketamine and never at the direction of law enforcement. Do you have any indication one way or another about whether Governor Polis will sign the bill? I reached out to his office to see if he'd talk about it. I got a brief statement from his staff that said he appreciates the work of the bill's sponsors on this, quote, important legislation, and that he will review it once it reaches his desk. Michael DeYuana is KUNC's investigative reporter. Michael, as always, thanks for your work on this. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Welcome back. This is KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. This week, we told you about a shift in COVID-19 outbreaks in the state's nursing homes. For the first time since the pandemic began, most of the cases are among staff and not residents. That's because only about one in three have gotten vaccinated. We're now seeing a similar shift in Colorado's correction system, despite offering a cash incentive to its workers. KUNC's Adam Reyes has more. Corrections officers were among the second group to get early access to coronavirus vaccines late last year. Sergeant Eric Olson jumped at that opportunity. I also wanted to do the right thing for the rest of society and not just protect my health, but protect other people's health, too. The 51-year-old works primarily in the infirmary at the Denver Reception Diagnostic Center, a smaller capacity, mostly temporary stay facility. Olson got the vaccine because he trusted the science, but the vast majority of his colleagues have not been as eager. You know, risk versus reward. A lot of people were thinking that there was not enough reward for the risk of the unknown. Data obtained by KUNC from the Department of Corrections shows staff vaccination spiked to over 1,000 in early January, followed by a sharp decline. While statewide vaccinations soared in late March, they sputtered at about 40 percent for the staff in the prisons. We want to be protected. We want to be compensated. And we want to be respected, too. On March 29th, CDOC announced a $500 incentive to their staff who already have or will get fully inoculated. It's about a tenth of the average weekly salary at most facilities. After they've been seeing other people who've gotten the shot and and they've seen that it's perfectly safe, and then they've... Uh, They've gotten a little bit more of an enticement. A lot of them have thought, okay, the reward is worth the risk now. About 75% of Olson's co-workers at the reception center now have at least one dose. But most of Colorado's prisons, including some of the largest outbreak sites, still have vaccination rates around or below 50%. I couldn't tell you why one facility, why those staff decided to take it more than another. That's CDOC Director Dean Williams three weeks after the incentives announcement. CDOC holds regular clinics for its staff and gives paid time off for side effects. Williams says they have a moral obligation to boost their vaccinations because the virus comes from the outside to the inside of the prison system. By the end of 2020, state outbreak data show about seven incarcerated people got sick with COVID for every one reported staff case. In all, 29 incarcerated people died. It's going to bedevil us for a while because like in the community, you'll have a breakthrough or somebody who wasn't vaccinated get it and then come to work and 
they may impact somebody else. So is the incentive working? In the two months since CDOC's bonus was introduced, vaccinations for staff who regularly work in the correctional facilities only increased about 15 percent, just over half in total. I'll say this. I think everything we can do to incentivize, no matter where we land on it, was and is the right thing to do. Some experts worry the lure of large sums of money would be unethically coercive for people with economic difficulties. Williams says theirs is designed to be more persuasive. Because it's a critical component of closing the chapter on this pandemic. Amid the back and forth about incentives, Dr. Matthew Winia, director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Anschutz, posed this question. If people don't like the idea of an incentive, you have to think about, okay, so what are the alternatives? His answer, after increased vaccine access and outreach efforts? If we want to maintain um, you know, herd immunity over time, we're going to have to have a mandate at some point. He points to the lack of major measles or mumps outbreaks as evidence that past vaccine mandates are working. But he also warns mandates may further politicize the vaccines. Or if you don't want a mandate, you try and incentivize people. While cash incentives might be a coercive carrot, he says a workplace mandate is a very coercive stick. And that's where CDOC Director Dean Williams is at on this, too. I think the incentive was uh, one more card to play in terms of of convincing people and of uh, the wisdom of this. He says the department is not currently in a position to mandate it, especially because he wants to give the incentive time to work. As for the state's incarcerated people, CDOC data from June 8th shows there are no active cases among them, despite 15 active staff cases. Adam Reyes, KUNC. Last month, Governor Jared Polis announced the Colorado Jumpstart Incentive Program in hopes of getting unemployed Coloradans back to work. Under the program, some unemployed people could receive an incentive of up to $1,200 for going to work in June. State officials, economists, and unemployed people have different ideas about how the program impacts unemployment. For some, like Kimberly of Commerce City, being unemployed is not a choice. I lost my job in August. I have been continuously looking for a job. I have applied to at least six jobs a week and not received one interview or one callback. I've noticed during my job search, the jobs that I normally would apply for that only required previous experience or a high school diploma now require associates and even bachelor's degrees. I don't even get looked at. Others have struggled to transfer their skills to new industries. My name is Catherine. I live in Arvada. I have been unemployed since Saturday, March 7th, 2020. I work in the entertainment industry, working behind the scenes and everything from film, theater, concerts. The CDLE's incentives are going to fail. <laughs> Many, like myself, have spent our entire lives working, living, and educating ourselves in a particular industry. And once those industries completely shut down, this left us with nowhere to go. To learn more about the incentive and its potential impact, Colorado Edition's Aaron O'Toole spoke with Martin Shields, a professor of economics at Colorado State University. He started by explaining how Colorado's approach to unemployment compares to other states. Most other states that we've heard about in the news are actually kind of pulling the rug out from the unemployed in the sense of, you're receiving this $300 a week addition to your normal unemployment, and we're going to take that away 
with the idea that if people have less of an incentive to remain unemployed, that they'll kind of be forced to go look for a job. Uh, Colorado's approach is very different. It says, uh, you know, we understand that you're getting this $300. We want to make employment more attractive to you, a more attractive option. So here's $1,600 additional signing bonus, essentially, if you've decided that, uh, you know, you, you do you do want to go back to the workplace. Well, in general, how effective is a monetary government incentive to get someone to do something they might not otherwise do? This is really an experiment. We haven't seen a lot of times where the government comes in and says, um, you know, if you go take a job, we will send you a check for taking that job. Sometimes we see talk of a, of like during a recession that, that the government might want to subsidize a worker's wages where the business pays $10 an hour and then the government pays $3 an hour to get that person up to $13 an hour in wages. So it helps the business save on the wage bill. And we, we've seen some of that that idea, but but the, the notion that um, the government's just going to send people a check if they get a job and keep and keep it for a while, uh, that, that's a pretty new new approach. The state incentive was higher initially, uh, 1600 for going back to work in May. It looks like they're ratcheting it down. It's now 1200 for those who get back to full-time work by the end of June. Do you think $1,200 is enough to get people back to work? Well, over the course of a, of a month, that's about $300, right? It's maybe $7.50 an hour of a wage boost. I imagine that there's a sliver of the population that that's actually a, a pretty significant incentive, and it will really make help make their lives better in the short run. But there's a whole bunch of people out there that are just, for whatever reason, even a $1,200 payment really isn't sufficient to pull them off, you know, off the sidelines. There might be childcare issues and childcare is really expensive. Or there are certainly workers that are legitimately fearful about getting sick. There's a whole host of reasons why People aren't necessarily jumping back into the workforce, and they're perfectly rational reasons, and it's very individual choice. And we've heard of some people who, you know, had a fairly high-paying job before the pandemic, for whatever reason, have not been able to work during the pandemic, and the idea of taking a lower-paying job just to get a $1,200 incentive isn't quite doing it for them. Some people uh, don't really recognize about the unemployment system is, you know, its primary purpose is to make sure people don't fall through the cracks, right? To help people who, um, who lost their jobs through no fault of their own. A second reason is to stimulate the economy. Like we want people to be able to spend so other people don't lose their jobs. But another thing that it does is it prevents people from rushing into a job that doesn't fully utilize their skills, and the economists call this a match, you know, like just like you have a dating app where you're trying to match uh, with someone that's like a, a good potential life partner for you. This is a match between a worker and, a, and an employer. And when those are good matches, that's good for the economy. Like the worker's happy in their job and their employer's happy and they do great things together. And when there's a bad match, then workers are dissatisfied, employers aren't getting the work, the right worker for the job. And the extent to which we don't want to force people into these bad matches. We don't want to put businesses in a bad match because that's not good for anyone. Turnover is really expensive. So maybe we'll let these people do their job search for a few more weeks to find a better match and a better use of their skills. And that will be better for the economy. 
We've seen a lot of local and national coverage of certain industries, and I'm thinking of restaurants and tourism-dependent businesses that are struggling to hire workers as we emerge from the pandemic. Why do you think this sector is particularly hard hit? I mean, obviously, that was the sector that got just devastated by the pandemic. And the workers that work in those businesses are the ones that lost their jobs. People stopped traveling. So leisure and hospitality was absolutely devastated by it. Leisure and hospitality has grown significantly over the last several months, uh, but it's still only about 85% of its level two years ago in terms of total employment. So it's not fully back yet. And part of that is workers hesitating to go back in in a shortage of workers. But part of it is that people that were employed in that industry for a variety of reasons aren't necessarily jumping back into that industry. First, it's not necessarily the most glamorous industry. So there's that part of it. But then there are a whole bunch of workers actually, there was no end date to this in March when we shut down. You know, you there was no, everyone will be back to work by August 1st or something like that. That didn't happen. With that uncertainty about when I'm going to get back to work, people start saying, well, what industries can I transition into? Maybe I can go work for Amazon, they're hiring, or maybe I can be a delivery driver, they're hiring, or maybe I can go work at a landscaping firm or, or, or I can reevaluate my options. And I think that we've kind of picked off a lot of workers from that pool of leisure and hospitality, and we've kind of transitioned them into other sectors. Martin Shields is a professor of economics at Colorado State University. Martin, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Erin. I really enjoyed my time with you. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.